From building rockets for a living to becoming a top U.S. water diplomat, our guest this episode has been down quite a few paths in his career, all while rocking a pretty sick ponytail. He's met world leaders, including some heavy hitters in American politics. As a former top U.S. water diplomat, he's made quite an impact in the water world. We'll be getting into all of that when we get to the interview portion of things. But since I've mentioned in the past about this recent trip that I took to Bangladesh, I wanted to catch you up a bit. In case you hadn't caught it, I recently went to to Dhaka in Bangladesh on a mission that was part water science and part water diplomacy. We wanted to explore collaborations on the food water nexus, and there are definitely some very positive things in the works. We also met some politicians, and to be honest, I'm not sure what will come out of it. One trip to a complicated place like Bangladesh, where groundwater depletion for irrigated agriculture and for drinking water is among the worst in the world, is not going to get the job done. We'll need to establish a dialogue, mutual trust, perhaps some new institutions, and that's just going to have to play out over the next few years. But the good news is that if you keep listening to Let's Talk About Water and rate and review it on iTunes or Stitcher, then we'll keep producing it and you'll be able to follow our progress on the show. Now, now that you're in the know, let's get into it. You're listening to Let's Talk About Water a podcast by the Global Institute for Water Security and the Walrus Lab. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's, 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 let's talk, 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 talk about, 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 about water. 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 Is that it? There's a lot of great work in water security research happening across North America. And it turns out, I'm not the only one heading a water institute. There are dozens of us. Dozens! Well, you know, at least maybe a handful. In case you didn't know, I'm the head of the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan, and I come from the world of academia. Aaron Salzberg has a very different background. And just this past year, Salzberg was named director of the Water Institute at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's talking to me from a studio at the Institute. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Jay. Thanks for uh, letting me join you. Well, welcome to the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. Um, You've had a super interesting career. I think the first time I met you, I was roaming the halls of the State Department and you were super busy, I don't know, probably bopping between Hillary Clinton and and Barack Obama, and you just had enough time to kind of pop your head in and and say hello. So that's kind of a pretty heady uh, position you had there. Tell me about your path. How How did you get there? How did you wind up at the State Department? Oh goodness, uh, that that's a long story. Uh, I, I think the the short of it is I came into the department through a AAAS fellowship, and that really gave me the opportunity to talk about science in the in the dipl- within the diplomatic community and talk about the challenges uh, that science issues uh, presents for diplomats, and hopefully to improve our inform our diplomatic approach across a whole range of issues. Uh, but it was a long path. Uh, I mean, I've, I've often said, so I've, I started as a car mechanic. 
Uh, I then moved on to work on what I thought were more complicated machines. I worked on helicopters for a while, composite materials, and then worked on spacecraft and, and satellites for a while. Uh, and then uh, ostensibly went back to school to, to look at more complicated machines. And, uh, and that was the human body. And so I did a little bit of cancer research and uh, uh, also at the same time uh, looked at uh, technology and public policy, how we communicate science to policymakers. Uh, and then got more interested in how the human mind looks at conflict issues and kind of combined all those interests together. And uh, that led me to the Department of State where I thought I could actually work on conflict issues and do it from a scientific perspective, so to speak. Well, that's very cool. And and that that path to where you ended up, I think, is is very interesting and very interesting for our listeners and especially the young ones who are thinking about um, what they're going to do with their lives. There are a lot of people that are um, interested in science but don't necessarily want to pursue academic careers. And, and so your story um, um, is an interesting one, um, if not a, a little bit unusual. Um, so what was the turning point that led you into the water world? You know, uh, water kind of found me. You know, when I came into the State Department, my background, I had no background in water. Uh, and in fact, I had almost zero exposure to the issue. And my interest at that point was looking at solving conflicts. And I was in a bureau that dealt with environmental issues, and I had done some other work on genetically modified organisms. And they said, that was interesting. What do you really want to do? And I said, look, I want to work on conflict. And they said, well, you're in a science and environment bureau. What does that look like? And I said, well, you know, a few years ago, we had a UN secretary general who said the next wars of the future will be over water. Um, and that wasn't the exact quote, but, but it was one that seemed to resonate. And I said, so what about this idea of conflicts over water? And they said, well, that's kind of interesting. I'm not sure anybody's working on that. I kind of took that idea and I started to shop it around a little bit. And there was a small cadre of individuals in the intelligence community and defense who, you know, were also beginning to look at this. And so it started there. And, and then once I got into it, because... Yeah, my career is basically I've been looking to to work on hard problems that matter, and water was it. And you know, when I got more and more into it, uh, this was the hardest problem I've ever seen. And and and, and I'm the proverbial rocket scientist, so I, I can kind of say this: uh, this is harder than rocket science to me. Solving the water challenges is is much harder than putting something into space. And, and so I became really intrigued around the technical complexity, the human capacity complexity, the, the financial complexity, the political complexity of trying to solve this kind of a problem. And when you look at transboundary issues, that added on a whole nother set of geopolitical issues and things on top of it that to me made these almost insolvable problems. But almost, but insolvable problems that could impact millions of people and billions of people if we got it right. And so what better way to spend your time, right, working on problems that, that can't be solved that, that could, you know, change the way the world is. Uh, so for me, it was, it was the, the greatest thing uh, since sliced bread. And I've just been so excited ever since to be able to work on these kinds of problems. Wow. And so so that's, that's, a, that's certainly a higher calling. But I need to ask you uh, if you can tell us about your meeting with President Barack Obama. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, I, I did get the chance to meet with the president. Uh, it was his second day in office, and he was that's over. A, the, that's a little too soon, <clears throat> I think. Well, in, in, in fact, 
And in fact, that's kind of the way I would describe it. You know, oftentimes people ask me, what was it like in the State Department? What happens when you meet with a head of state uh, and things like that? And I know when I meet with international heads of state, I often describe it as walking on a high wire between two very tall buildings. And that as long as you're looking forward and doing what you're supposed to do, you're okay. But every once in a while you look down and you realize, holy crap, I am so far off the ground that you, you panic. And, and I think on his second day, uh, and, and he's a remarkable individual, and it was wonderful to meet him and, and see him in action and just tremendous charisma and all of that. But there was also this, uh, you know, on the second day, I think he was looking down. And I think he was realizing what was in front of him. And there was a little bit of that, you know, behind behind the eyes, you could see a little bit of that, you know, what have I gotten myself into? And, and that was a really human thing to see. And I think for me, it, it, it added a quality to him and I think to his leadership that um, always stuck with me and I thought was, a, was a, a humanizing element that was just wonderful to see. Tell me about your experience there. How long were you at State for? Uh, I was in the department for almost 20 years. Wow. That's uh, that's a long time. So you must have dealt with a lot of secretaries of state, right? I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of presidents and a lot of secretaries. I did. I, I had the great pleasure of working with um, Secretary Albright, uh, Secretary Powell, uh, as well as Secretary Clinton. I think those are the three that I spent the most time with. Uh, and uh, just remarkable people. And it was just a remarkable opportunity for me uh, to be able to learn how the policymaking process works, but also to be able to inform you know, the way the U.S. government approaches international water challenges. So tell me, I have to know, who of them was the most interested in water? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, you know, each each had a different take on it. Uh, you know, Secretary Albright was the first secretary uh, to give a speech where she emphasized the importance of water uh, to U.S. national security. She did that in an Earth Day speech. And so I give her a lot of credit uh, for beginning to bring attention to this issue. And I think Secretary Powell certainly appreciated how natural resource challenges could impact national security uh, state fragility, and how it could impact our own interests here in the United States. And so I think this was an issue that uh, he was very sensitive to. But I think it was Secretary Clinton who really vested a good portion of her time and effort and political capital in trying to advance this issue. And I think, you know, she did a number of things that I think were just transformational in how we look at international water issues now and really launched this entire sector of hydro diplomacy, so to speak. So I, I give her a lot of credit for that. Interesting. So do you have any examples you can share with us? I, I think if I had to point to uh, one example. So Secretary Clinton was the one who asked the national intelligence community to do the intelligence community assessment around the impacts of international water challenges on U.S. national security. Hmm. And, and okay. so not everybody has seen the document. If you haven't, I think it was put out in 2012. And, you know, for those of us who know a lot about water issues, uh, you might find it um, a little bit drier than, than you'd like to see, so to speak. Sorry, sorry for the pun. Uh, I, I think you'd like to see a, a fuller treatment of some of the issues. But uh, the real impact of that document was that 
it really got the intelligence community within the United States. You know, this is a very hard product to produce. Uh, an NIE or an intelligence classified assessment requires the heads of every one of the intelligence agencies to sign off on it. So it's a very high-level product. And so when, when a statement like this comes out, it can really resonate among policymakers in the defense community. And so here in 2012, uh, because Secretary Clinton had asked for it, the community puts out this report saying that, look, these international water challenges are going to impact uh, the ability of states to survive. It's going to impact their, their resiliency, their stability, their security. It's going to impact regional security and stability. And it's going to keep these countries from being able to work on priorities that are important to the United States. And that message really resonated here. But what was interesting is that Secretary Clinton then took that report and used it as the basis for a meeting uh, up at the UN General Assembly with Lady Ashton, who at the time was the lead foreign minister for the European Union. And, and so she was very much taken by this linkage as well between water and security issues and how it might impact uh, you know, issues like conflict and peace and security. She went back to the European Union, and they have regular monthly meetings, council meetings, of all the foreign ministers in Europe. Those ministers met, and they passed a series of notes committing themselves to now working on hydro diplomacy, looking at the nexus between water and conflict. And what was interesting is that for those of us who are fans of Stockholm Water Week and, and some of those events, is that from that point forward, you started to see people from ministries of foreign affairs attending Stockholm Water Week. And all of a sudden, we were seeing diplomats and people who work on hardcore security issues now visiting the water community to learn more about what was going on and how these... And so while that's not something I think a lot of people would notice, that to me was fundamentally transformational in the way the international community was now viewing water issues. And that was something I think she was responsible for. Uh, you know, Secretary Kerry for... Um, Just to be clear, right, so we're talking about Secretary of State John Kerry, who was Secretary of State under President Obama. Yes? Oh, yes. You're, you're, yes. you're, you're doing then, good so far. Thank you. And yeah. then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who was also Secretary under President Obama. Right. And then Madeleine Albright, of course, and, oh, Col thank you. and Colin Powell. And oh, I was, forgot about uh, them. So sorry. Because they didn't was, write pivotal reports. So that's I right. Just, and the, you know, Secretary Rice, but this wasn't a big issue for her. Right. Um, okay. So Secretary Powell was secretary under George Bush II, right? George that's, W. Bush. That's right. And Madeleine Albright was secretary. I don't remember. You have to fill us in. Under Clinton. Okay. So there's a, a, a history there of some very recent secretaries of state really thinking very carefully about water. So that's encouraging. Uh, you know, Secretary Kerry, he was very focused on oceans and on climate. And while I did my best to remind uh, the institution of the importance of water and that probably the most profound impacts of climate change will be on the hydrologic cycle, um, water just didn't figure uh, largely into Secretary Kerry's environmental work. 
And so, so you know, I didn't I didn't realize that, and and that's an excellent point. Of course, is that um, it is water is the vector by which many people will experience climate change. Of course, there's temperature, but um, there's so much happening with water: the flooding, the drought, the changes in precipitation. Of course, sea level rise is part of the global water cycle from melting ice and snow and glaciers. So, um, okay, so given this recent history of uh, a string of secretaries of state who uh, were really vested, who were really invested in water issues. Um, what do we think about what's happening right now? Do you have any comments you'd like to share with us with the current administration and how things are going? And perhaps um, did that have any impact on your decision to leave state and move to academics? Well, I, I mean, I think um, it's disappointing. And uh, I mean, everything from looking at water as uh, fundamental to achieving a, a whole range of our uh, international goals and objectives, everything from humanitarian response to development assistance to peace and stability. Um, you know, water can be an incredibly important tool in achieving those types of diplomatic outcomes. And uh, I, I think, unfortunately, uh, it's fallen out of the quiver right now, and it's not something that uh, the, the certainly the State Department, I think, is doing much work in these days. Right. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. Um, it seems to be the way that things are going in the U.S., and it's very difficult. As you know, I'm up here in Canada now, and it's very difficult to to sit uh, up up north here and sort of look down south and see how things are almost unraveling, all the policies, all the undoing, uh, all the dismantling. It's extremely frustrating. Are you frustrated by that? Well, certainly domestically I am. And when you look at the things that we're now walking away from in terms of implementation of the Clean Water Act, uh, investments in infrastructure and in, in uh, regulation of pollutants into our waterways, I, this is really troubling. And, and I do fear that uh, if we're in this position for you know, another, uh, another four years, that that could be incredibly, incredibly detrimental uh, to all of us. And uh, yeah, so I, I agree. And and um, part of, you know, as you know, I've given many, many, many talks over the last several years. And when people ask what can be done about it, one of the things that I say is, you know, you have to get out and vote and you have to ask uh, candidates what their what their water platform is. Right. People are very focused on the economy. But, you know, we don't really talk enough about about water. I think that's unfortunate. Well, and, and, and you and I could turn this into a joint therapy session. I mean, I we, think yes, that... Yes, we could. Yeah, I, I'm I mean, laying down right now, Aaron. <laughs> you know, if you want to just go ahead and... It's, it's, it's just, re just relax. Uh, okay. Relax. Um, I, I mean, I, I, share you, I share your pain. You know, and part of this is, is the challenge of water generally, right? Uh, especially in countries like ours where people have ready access to this resource, uh, where you can look at it and at least intuitively, it gives you this sense of purity and, and cleanliness and safety. Um, and, and of course, you and I know better, right? There are you know, 100,000 chemicals in production, and we know that most of those are in our water and most of those aren't being tested for, and most of which we ha don't have toxicological data on. Uh, and so there are some of us who know that uh, you know, we wouldn't drink this stuff. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's just 
uh, on the surface, uh, and apologize for the pun, but you know, on the surface, it just looks so pristine and so accessible that we take it very much for granted. And you know, your work on groundwater and some of the things that you've done so well to bring attention to uh, is really important. But it, it just takes time, and people have to appreciate that. And that's a hard thing to do. It's it's hard to get people to do that. Yeah, I I know. Um, it, it and it is it is frustrating. But you know, we have to keep you know people like. Uh, like you and I need to keep slugging away at it. Well, you know, much of our water is handled, especially groundwater is handled state by state. It's the same thing here in Canada, province by province. There's not a lot of national water policy, not in Canada, not in the United States. Do you think that that is necessary? Do you think that, I mean, okay, present administration aside, do you see a role for a national policy? Uh, you know, a really complicated question. Uh, the short answer is yes. I think there there's no question that there would be value in having national-level leadership, national-level planning, uh, and in some cases, national-level regulation to ensure that there was a harmonization of standards across states that would protect our water resources. Uh, and I think as our resources become more scarce, uh, that that's going to become even more critical. As the impacts of climate change become more profound, I think that's going to become more critical. And as the need for more creative solutions to water storage and uh, become necessary, that that's going to become more critical. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. The challenge, of course, is that we're federalist countries, and uh, the states have a lot of authority to manage these issues on their own, and rightfully so, right? We want to keep decision-making at the lowest possible level uh, because that's where people can really balance uh, the costs and benefits in a meaningful way for them, and that's critically important. Um, but you'd like to think that the national government can be supportive in, in some of these uh, uh, bigger problems where we're going to have to look at interstate management, we're going to have to look at national level uh, allocations and infrastructure and things like that, uh, and capacities and capabilities uh, that you'd like to see the national government be able to step in and help out. So it's, it's going to have to be done with a very light touch, uh, but I think there are ways where some sort of national entity can be very helpful in states addressing some of these challenges. Right. You know, I, I agree with you, Aaron. I think that there's that role for the uh, national level sort of as a backstop. But the light touch comment you made, I think, is very important because I think most states want to be in control of uh, of their water resources. Of course, when there's um, transboundary interstate uh, surface waters, there have to be agreements. You know, you have to think about all the water, not just the surface water. So uh, encouragement to include groundwater in uh, international and interstate discussions, I think, is really, really critical. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, this is a huge sin of omission. And, uh, you know, but, you know, the the need, I, I do want to differentiate a little bit from the need to ensure that the importance of groundwater for storage and long-term drought mitigation and, and things like that, that groundwater is being incorporated into our planning decisions and processes and, and everything versus, let's say, reaching new agreements that allocate groundwater resources. Because uh, that latter part may be a bridge too far given the political environment of what's going on. You know, I always fear that when you walk into the room and say, we need to negotiate a new agreement that includes X, Y, and Z, that that all of a sudden 
pushes the conversation into a political domain that makes things a lot more complicated. Whereas if we can often keep these conversations around how do we build a better model technically that allows us to understand what's going on, it's sometimes easier to build support among all the people you need to and then turn to that political discussion. Uh, you know, I, I like to walk into the room with all the cards and, the, you know, already known, everything's already on the table, and that we can already say, here are the opportunities and the challenges before I throw it over to the political people because then you can lose control too easily. Uh, let, let's pick up the conversation I started off uh, uh, this podcast with in talking about Bangladesh. So, you know, here I am in, in Bangladesh and trying to deliver this message in a very, very complicated, chaotic, part corrupt, heavily political environment that, you know, Bangladesh is, is probably, and some of our work, actually, it, it shows up in some of our maps as uh, the place where groundwater depletion is the worst in the world. And uh, was there for, for two weeks. And it's almost impossible for somebody like me to even move around the city, uh, never mind have important conversations with water ministers, which I did, and get the message across to, to those ministers. So I guess what I'm getting at is how can we have an impact in some of these, in some of these countries where the politics are super complicated, the culture is completely different, right? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Some of these places that are, you know, India, northwestern India, I'm thinking about all these hotspots from my remote sensing maps, right? So, you know, the Middle East, but really we're talking about Turkey and Syria, northwestern India, Bangladesh. It's really difficult to go in and try to have an impact in those places. What, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? What are your experiences? No, I think I think you're exactly right. I mean, this is it, it's very very tough, and I think, you know, for me, there's two sides to this. One is when you approach senior leaders, and water ministers are usually the easy ones to win over because you'll find that most of the water ministers are struggling with this very same set of challenges in getting their own leadership, the finance ministers, the prime minister, the head of states, uh, to listen to, to, to their claims about what's going on. So a key part of this is how do you empower them? But when you move beyond the water minister and you're talking to senior leaders, uh, you, you need to contextualize the challenges that we're talking about. Um, to go up to a senior leader like that and say, hey, look, you've got a real problem because you're going to run out of water in, in 20 years or whatever it is, uh, and, and this is what's – you need to be able to say specifically, here's what the impacts of this are going to be economically, socially, politically, uh, from a health perspective – and, and you need to be able to compare that to other challenges that they're dealing with on a daily basis. You know, I've, I, I've had the pleasure to work with a number of um, high-level people from across the world. And I remember sitting outside with a minister from Africa, and he, and he said, look, every day I'm making decisions about who lives and who dies. And, and, that's, and, and so I am, in, I am always incredibly humbled when I have the opportunity to sit down with people in that situation because they are dealing 
with issues that I can only begin to fathom. And, and who am I to walk in and think that I've got the answers to them or to tell them what's important to them? And so what I try to do is to approach it with, here's what I see as the challenges. Um, here's how those challenges rank up against the other challenges that you're dealing with so that you, prime minister or head of state, you can now make the decision that's best for you. Don't make the decision that I'm telling you to do. Make it the best decision for you, but let me give you the best data I can to help inform that decision across the other things that you're dealing with. So that's one side of it. The other side is with the public. These folks have to sell these solutions to their publics if they're going to succeed. And sometimes there's some real work that needs to be done uh, to help the public understand the challenge. Now, sometimes it's not that hard, right? Some farmers know this when they're running out of water every other year and they can't produce their crops. Uh, Then they're speaking up and they're saying the things that they, they need to say. But something like groundwater, which might be a hidden Uh, vulnerability, there's a lot of education that needs to happen. And so I I really believe in journalist training and working to help build uh, those people who can tell the story, um, help build their capacity to tell that story in a credible, legitimate, evidence-based way uh, so that, you know, people aren't looking at us like we're heretics, but that they're saying, look, this is thoughtful, it's contextualized properly, and it makes sense to me. And I think that's really important because I worry about this. I worry that the water community uh, has a tendency to overstate its case. And if we're not careful, uh, you know, people will start to tune us out. And, and that's something we have to be very sensitive to, I think, going forward. By the way, but, you know, what, what, this is a great community. You know, for those of us who work in the community, I think we kind of get it. But, you know, th- these are just wonderful people. They're passionate about making a difference. Uh, I think a lot of us know we don't know if they have the answers and we're struggling to figure it all out. And we're all kind of in this struggle together. And to me, I, you know, the community and the space and, and the people that water brings together uh, just makes this a great place to work as well. So I, it's just really exciting space. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, th- I think we're we're in it for life. We share the passion, and uh, we've really benefited from uh, today from from uh, sh- you sharing your wisdom and your insights with us from uh, all this time in the State Department. It's been great. Uh, I have one last question for you. Sure. Um, are you still rocking that ponytail? <laughs> um, I'll keep it as long as it can still grow. Um, so there's a little bit of competition for uh, for terrain going on right now, but we'll see. I, I understand. I'll do yeah, my I best. Lost my, I lost my capability uh, years ago. Well, thanks so much for that for that great story, Aaron, and thanks for for talking with us today. Aaron Salzberg is currently the director of the Water Institute at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In his former life, he worked as the special coordinator for water at the U.S. Department of State. Thanks so much, Aaron. Oh, my pleasure, Jay. Thank you so much for having me. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Take care, everyone. All right. Bye-bye. Well, everybody, we're on the verge of wrapping up this season of Let's Talk About Water. This is episode nine, and episode 10 will be the last one of the season. We're putting in some extra elbow grease behind the scenes to make it a special one for our listeners. In fact, if you play your cards right, you could hear your voice in the final episode. Here's how. If you're listening to this in early March, I have a question for you, and I want you to answer it. What's the greatest inconvenience you've ever faced when it comes to water? It could be anything from a dry year for your crop to overflowing your bathtub. It's up to you. And the more details, the better. Here's how you can answer the question. 
You know that little voice memo function on your cell phone or even the video recorder? Well, you can record yourself answering the question and then send that file to us. On Facebook, you can message us at facebook.com slash ltawpodcast or you can email us directly at water.talk at usask.ca. I'll look forward to it. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk About Water, a podcast dedicated to the future of water and why you should care. It's a collaboration between the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan and the Walrus Lab. I'd like to thank the people who put this podcast together, Mark Ferguson, Chelsea Laskowski, Jesse Widow, Morgan Broughton, and Wayne Giesbrecht. Thanks so much, everybody.